0: And now, the Andy Greenwald podcast.
1: Andy, Andy.
0: My name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. Great day here in New York City because my guest, well, he's used to being a host. He is the host of True. Late Night with Seth Meyers. Table, table turned. Yeah. Get ready. Yeah. We are going to flip the actual script here. This is this is Seth Meyers. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm, it's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, today is Friday. Yes. Which is your day off. Tra- your tra- The talk show hosts traditional day of rest.
1: Yes. We will. I will go into the office after this. We do, we okay. do still convene and do some work, but we don't tape. So it feels like a day off. Oh, okay. I appreciate that then. I I, I thought that maybe this was your day to just wild out or just. No, we still save the conventional weekends for the wilding. Do you really? Okay, good.
0: Yeah. That's good. Because I know your schedule previously to late night was, you know, very much based. Yes.
1: To get to, I mean, to lose that six day a week schedule was a real lifesaver. Like, (laughs) literally saved my life, I'm pretty sure. You did that for a very long time. Yeah. I did it about as long as anybody's ever done it. And. It's funny, especially my generation, we all remark on how much younger we look ever since we stopped. <laughs> yes. Particularly Andy Sandberg, who looks fantastic. He looks great. And he looked like a ashen, <laughs> you know, sort of like a tuberculosis victim.
0: What's interesting is this doesn't happen to presidents who age probably equal to Saturday Night Live cast yes. members, but then they don't de-age. They don't doors. bounce back, yeah. Maybe because of what they've seen is potentially a little more real or raw.
1: Right. Also, we all stay in show business, which, of course, there's a lot of tricks to make you look That's younger. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was
0: going to say Andy has moved to California, and I imagine the golden light has cured him.
1: I said at Andy's wedding because I gave a toast at Andy's wedding that they should put a before and after photo of Andy as you drive into California. Yes. It's just like this is what this state <laughs> yes. did for this poor man. Yes. And and that would be like a, a better pull than anything you right. could. Right. Sure advertise. we don't have water, but look what we look did. what we did to Andy's. <laughs> we comedian. fixed him. Yeah. <laughs> Finally someone <laughs> yes. did. We put light into his body. I want,
0: is has you have you considered having your body studied by science because of what that toll did to you for all those years? I
1: I would have been terrifying to have gone through like one of those, you know, uh Olympic testing things where they like, like strap stuff to your 50 chest. cent at the beginning of the, in the club video. Exactly. Yeah. Because um, I do think it's really just that every night you slept a different amount of time. Yes. Because that's what I've realized. This job, look, is not without its stresses. Yeah. It's very hard work. But I go to bed and I wake up every, the same time every day. Yeah. Or at SNL, there were just, it was different, like, periods of time and then your body just cannot survive when it does that
0: also i I would imagine yes it's different that you're making four shows a week instead of just one but you're making ostensibly the same show and then doing variations within it whereas saturday night live
1: well you always know when weekend update is going to happen right it's essentially a completely new show every week yeah you're building it up from the bottom and also i think the bigger thing about getting to do a show every night is doing the show is the release of the pressure. Right. And, you know, then when you do, when you have the luxury of volume as far as how many shows you do, mm-hmm. that allows you to be a little bit less precious about it. Whereas with SNL, especially because you only have this one host for these six days, yes. you feel like you're building a ship in a bottle. And when something goes wrong, it can stay with you. I mean, there are still shows from my time there that are really? like, oh, we really, that one did not go well. Still. Yeah. Whereas I can't, you know, in my head, I can't remember, you know. Oh, that was a great show, or that wasn't. Because with... you're building a longer. Yes, and as body you said, work. they all kind of look a little bit more similar. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, with different hosts, that's you know, can be a very a vastly different show.
0: I have to ask you, since you brought it up, um, you are uh, sleeping a regular amount of time now. Yeah, that's very nice. But when you do wake up in a cold sweat, what is the Saturday Night Live missed opportunity show that wakes you up?
1: Um, I wouldn't. You know, I I feel like I'm very. Uh, careful never to mention a host's name. Uh, I knew you would be, but I thought yeah. if, I, if I really came you in hard you came early? early. It's more, you know, there are, you know, obviously over the course of time you just know the difference between, it's not, I never have to wake up in a cold sweat about someone who maybe wasn't a great host and then it wasn't a great show. Right. But there are times, like hosts that come multiple times. Right. You know, and then you look back on, You know, obviously, if you look back on all of Alec Baldwin's shows, some of them are transcendent, and then the ones that are just average, you know, you feel like you miss the opportunity because you're supposed to do a better-than-average show with Alec Baldwin. That's right. And the other thing is, Alec Baldwin's a really smart guy, and he knows that it's also average. Like, that's the thing with a bad host who is doing it for the first time. You can trick them into thinking it's fine. Yes. Whereas you can't trick somebody like... Uh, Justin or Alec or John Hamm into into thinking like hey this one's a really good one they know
0: they know you can't trick John Hamm would be a great reality series yeah. I feel like I would like to be involved in that um, I wanted to have you here for many reasons and I want to talk about Saturday Night Live of course but I do want to talk specifically about Late Night um, you've now been doing it for just over a year and a half yeah. The show is really good. Thank you. I really have been enjoying it a lot. Um, Appreciate it. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the. Well, in an email, you said that it, and I think correctly, that doing the show is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh huh. Um, it is now October 2015. You have a time traveling device. You can go back and speak to Seth Myers in January 2014, one month before the debut.
1: Right. What do you tell this, this naive, doe eyed young man? It's such a good question because at the same time you know i think where we came where sort of where we've arrived to and where we're continuing to go you know you learn from the mistakes you make yeah and so i don't i wouldn't want to go back and like save myself those mistakes cuz i also don't even think i'd trust myself from the future <laughs> right <laughs> my inability to trust anything yes um who, who is this some yeah. guy in a plaid shirt but you know i think one of the things we did like for example you know we spent obviously a long time Doing monologues, regular monologues, right. regular standing conventional monologues. Recently, we made this shift back to starting at the desk—a revolutionary shift. Tons a revolutionary. Did this. not realize. You know, we did not realize we were uh, starting a revolution. But yeah. it. You know, with that said, I do think if we had just started that way, you know, my my first late night was three weeks after my last weekend update. Yes. It would have looked like we hadn't taken any risks. It would have mm-hmm. looked like, hey, this is the exact same. I'm not trying to do anything differently. Whereas returning to it was a successful move. I don't know if we'd started that way. Right? Um, you know, and other things, you know, we did figure out things really quickly. Because, and I think this is why it also took us so long to get back to the desk. One, we had built a set for our test shows yeah. that was like a weekend update set. Yeah. That we would use sort of in the second act and do, we were calling it the newsmaker's desk. And we would have our writers sort of play somebody in the news. And it looked very much like an update oh, right. feature. And we discarded it immediately. Uh, We could just tell, like, oh, this isn't going to work in the way that update features work. Because with an update feature, even if Bill Hader is playing a character for the first time, he comes out and the audience has this confidence that it's Bill Hader. Yes. Whereas with my writing staff, like you, I realized, oh, it's going to take a couple of years to like slowly introduce sort of the performers and our writing staff to the yeah. audience and to the point where they're sort of patient enough to stick with it.
0: Because Hater at the Weekend Update desk is a great example of it. It's You are eager to go on that journey. And, yes. And watching him navigate the uh, the moguls downhill is part of the joy
1: of it. Yeah. And, you know, like every person at SNL, you have hits and you have misses, but they're, you need the audience to at least be willing to... I assume it's going to be a hit. You're invested in the person, not the bit, because right. there's another bit coming. And so that was... Uh, I guess I would go back, and and this is a, this was probably the hardest shift for me to take, because uh, my time at SNL wasn't just as, obviously, as a cast member, but also as part of the writing staff. Yeah. And I think... And this was something that Lauren tried to impart on me from the beginning, which is, like, you... It's, it's really just about you when you host a late-night talk show. And mm-hmm. it's, you have to, in a weird way, like... Um, I'm not very good at being selfish in the way I needed to be, I think, to get the show to a comfortable place. Right. Um, which is like, oh, and then, you know, in this act, someone else will come out and we'll do a bit together. And then, and it was slowly. And I think that's why now I'm really comfortable with the first act of the show is it's me doing the thing I'm best at. Right. And uh, yeah, but it just took a while to get there. It's been interesting
0: um, having the the beat that I've had for the last few years during this period of talk show uh, upheaval and, yeah. and, and a lot of new hosts coming in. And basically my job being to review the first show, which is impossible and cruel. I mean, we don't review restaurants on the day they open. No, Um, But it, it makes it doesn't make sense for two reasons. One, because obviously this is this is not the show that it's going to be. You know, the person is green doing something new for the first time. But. More than that, the show is the body of work and the trust and the relationship yes. that you choose to spend time with that person. It's like, it has, a comfort level has to be developed. Um, so to come in and, you know, I wrote about Trevor's debut two weeks ago, which was a great mm-hmm. debut, but I had to write and say, I promise you this is in no way reflective of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah in six months, right.
1: one year, or two years. Um, these things evolve. And I do think with all these shows, more than other... Types of television, yeah. you are tuning in for some degree of consistency. Yes. Obviously, you as a viewer know some shows are going to be better than others. Some shows will have like a big guest that will sort of take over the show that night. But ultimately, like when you think of the time of day people are settling in to watch these shows, mm-hmm. they want to say, like, what is the average? late night episode and is that something that can hold my attention at twelve thirty five at night well one of the things that i really grown to like about what
0: your show has turned into is obviously the political stuff has been very good and i think that was very smart because that's in your wheelhouse but also there was potentially a void as, as john was stepping away and steven was moving to cbs people love that sort of humor and you were
1: more than qualified to do it yeah with that said you know that was another thing that really just took a year and a half to figure out how to do you know i certainly was drawn to uh, writing about politics at snl and on weekend update but it was a whole different style Mm -hmm. and we not only had to find writers who were good at that but we had to teach the other writers who weren't good at that as well as teaching myself because Mm -hmm. again like writing sort of like longer political runs was a a skill set that just takes a while to develop, and in the beginning, and they're really hard to pull off. And so, in the beginning, it was once a month, and then it was once a week, and now we're trying to shooting for two or three times a week. It's a really interesting balance because you
0: want to be—it's a mix of—you want to be informative to some degree. Mm-hmm. There's a degree of stridency, isn't the word, but passion, if yes. especially if it's an issue that you know you're, I think you're it's not like tipping point your
1: Point of view—that okay. I feel like is—I I would say the biggest shift, and I think it came in no small part from Colbert Report, Daily Show. Mm-hmm. And John and Stephen like just kind of showed like audiences like knowing what mm-hmm. the host feels, and I feel like that wasn't the case maybe twenty years ago in That's the right. same way. I mean, you knew what obviously Letterman felt about things, but you didn't like you didn't know his politics in the same way. He didn't. He seemed to look at the world always with the same ride, detached amusement. You yes. never saw him
0: get heated, right? Um, particularly, but but I would say you know in Weekend Update. The thing that I'm thinking of is when you did Really with Amy, Yeah. Because that was a little bit like a pressure release. I mean, you guys, A, had so much fun with it. And it was, yes. that made it fun to watch. But people
1: want that tone. They we do. Want to, we want to say, stop the world, this is insane. And it was, you know, I remember there's so few times when you do anything at SNL that... It's, well. I guess what I'm saying is, like, sometimes things start, you don't realize you have a hit on your hand. Right. Really, I remember the first time we did it thinking, oh, that... <laughs> You know yeah. that one actually works. We yeah. were, I Mike Schur and I used to always talk about because we met at SNL and this is Mike Schur who we went on to create Parks and Recreation yep. and is a noted baseball blogger. Yes, exactly. Famous most for being a baseball <laughs> blogger, but and this is why I'm so happy. This is leading into our baseball analogy about SNL. Yes. that's pretty much how we framed all of it. Oh, which perfect. Is, ultimately, you work at SNL for a really long time, and there's only like six bat flip moments <laughs> where you either have a sketch or a joke. Very timely, by the Very way. Very timely. You. Yes. Where you just that thing of you just know off the bat that mm-hmm. you've done it, and I guess the first really would have been one of the closest I ever had to that. Um,
0: the uh, you know the, I, what you, you said about Planned Parenthood the other week was very well done, but I was really um, engaged by the, the gun violence one. Yeah, because I felt like that to me that was the perfectly mixed cocktail of those three things. Of uh, what, I, mean, I think I only listed two, but po- uh, po- <laughs> I'm really yeah. good at this. Passion, by the way. yeah, uh, passion, uh, information giving. Yes. And jokes. Yeah. Which are, of course, the most probably the most important ingredient. That's the gin in the martini.
1: I think, yeah, because you, you you do, like, there's this news element. Like, will people know a little bit more when this is over. Mm-hmm. Um, and keeping in mind that I do think a lot of people, you know, people who work hard, people who have mm-hmm. long days, like, they miss the news. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming uh, people aren't on Twitter as much as you and I. I think they're... God, I hope so. I hope so, as um, well, for the benefits of their families and their... The benefit of the world. <laughs> yeah. And... So there's maybe something they missed. Uh, and then, yes, obviously jokes. But I do think and what we've learned, because sometimes we'll do a piece that I would say sort of qualifies as an explainer more than anything else that has less of a strong point of view. But the I've noticed, like, the bigger point of view you have when you get into a piece, like, the more you can tell the audience uh, Appreciates it right and, and we, we, you mentioned
0: this already, and I think it 's very true the idea of comfort and familiarity and and mm-hmm. after a long day that 's what people like they like to tuck in with their friends and yeah. world worldview that they like um, but i'm I am interested and you 're at the forefront of it on why we still care about these shows so much and certain hallmarks of them you know you, sitting down at the desk seemed like an enormous deal, and maybe no one expected that um, because in a way you 're making these shows now for two different distinct audiences and time periods. You're making them for people who are watching it at, at 12.30, of mm-hmm. course, but you're also making them for people who are watching them in their cubicle at 12.30 p.m. the next day at lunch. Yes. Um, how do you walk that line between traditional, fealty to tradition of the format, yep. and wanting to shake it up and, and push things forward to a small degree?
1: Well, I, you know what? I always, the lesson I learned at SNL is, like, if you do good work, that's the stuff that sort of lives on. Mm-hmm. And... You know, when the Lonely Island guys came in, because they were sort of part of that digital revolution, Mm -hmm. maybe the entire part of it, I should say, at SNL. But at the same time, SNL was always built to be watched the next day. Like, it was already in sort of increments for YouTube before there was a YouTube. That's right. And late night to some degree is that as well. I mean, the biggest difference is I think most of what we do on late night is certainly on our late night, it's gonna like it's best consumed within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, a really good monologue, just like a really good weekend update. Like they don't last forever. That's right. You know, there's some jokes that obviously you could tell 10 years later. Oh my god, and I remember Norm told this joke, and it's still really funny. But ours, they're better in a way. Like you know, they're like fresh fruit. They're gonna go bad faster, That's but they're right. really good if you eat them close to when you first pick them from the tree. So we do still want people to consume our show either twelve thirty at night or twelve thirty the next day and i feel like it'll be the same experience for them depending you know other than how they're watching or where they're watching it.
0: you you refer to your one of your abilities at snl as you know as a as a collaborator and a facilitator mm-hmm. um and that you know engendered a certain modesty in you as a performer i want to come back to that in terms of snl but i actually think it served you very well on the show because what you have every night when I've watched is genuine enthusiasm for your guests. It, you know, for my, my ideal 1230 show is a nice cocktail party that you can yes. go to where the guests are good. The host is good. The banter is good. And it's, you know, there doesn't have to be, you know, at 1130 there, there are certain considerations that have to be made. You're going to have to talk to the people who have the movie out that week. Right. That can be great. It can be great for ratings. You can get big names, but maybe you're not actually interested in them. Um, you know, a few months ago, you had Marlon James, who wrote who now the Booker Prize-winning yes, history of Seven very Killings. very excited about that. Which is a terrific book. And you got to have him on your show. And, you know, even if people had never heard of him, even if people had never heard of the
1: book, that made for good TV. Yes. We were lucky. You know, again, you obviously take a certain amount of gamble when you have somebody like Marlon on who hasn't, you know, there isn't tape. Right. You know, don't say, well, he's great on Kimmel, so no. I think. so. And did you know he was going to wear that fabulous suit? Before you booked him, or I had you just no idea. It was great, but I will say we've been very lucky with Juno Diaz recently as well. Right. You realize uh, there there are more teachers since they are yes, teachers. Right. They're fantastic in front of an audience. Yes, um, but we do have this to some degree. Even you know you talked about it with the eleven thirty shows. It's it's true with the twelve thirty shows as well. Like you were obviously going to get people who promote. To some degree, it's that third guest spot mm-hmm. on all the shows. Where I feel like you can, as the host, show your taste Mm -hmm. more than anywhere else. You know, last night, you know, Nathan Fielder was our third guest. Perfect. You know, and that's a great slot for sort of like comedians that really impress you or Mm -hmm. authors of books you've read. Um, And and for the audience to meet someone new. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you open the show with that, people might. Because we do. I can tell. I go out and say hi to the crowd every night before the show starts. And I basically, to some degree, tell three jokes almost the exact same way, just as, like, bellwethers to Mm -hmm. see, like, are they better or worse Mm -hmm. than usual? And you can tell they are more excited if they have heard who the guests of the show are that night. Um, Now, by the time somebody like Marlon James comes on, they're as excited to see him as anyone. But it's just that top of the show, that first act. It is helpful when... They're like, oh, my God, I'm here on a night that Bradley Cooper's here. They feel right. like to some degree there is a lottery to showing up at these things, and they want to feel like they're winners. And they've won, yeah. Yeah. But, so, but ultimately, the nice thing about our show is I would, I would say that to, to pretty much um, 100% of the time, we, we don't have anyone on that I'm dreading talking to. Right. And that, I think, makes a big difference. And it's clear. I mean, I, I, unless there's some episodes
0: that I've missed where you had this, I believe you are note-free. I'm pretty interview. much note free, yeah. So I feel very shamed here because yeah, oh no, <laughs> I'm I'm actually watching uh, MLB. Uh I bet if, you were, if this was only
1: eight minutes long, you could have gotten out free as well.
0: You never know. You never know. <laughs> I, you may also notice that I always hold a pen, even though I have no place to write it. Because, right. You know, either I am Bob Dole, or it is my nervous tick during interviews. I
1: still, I can, I still pencil now at the desk a little bit. I'll, it's I just, like to have a pencil. I pen. like to just have something to yeah. hold, just in case this goes sideways. I think I like it, especially with jokes that holding a pencil in my hand makes me feel like if something goes wrong, I can fix it, yeah. even though it's already too late. I thought you were going to say you could then stab the audience in the eye. Yeah, and, I, but I could only stab one of them, <laughs> sounds that's true. Like yeah,
0: but the others would be shocked, yeah exactly, <laughs> <They> <laughs> shocked, or at least warned that's right, they would yeah. know start laughing, yeah, um, I want to go back a little bit, um I want to turn the clock back a little bit, I want to ask you about um, the beginnings of your comedy career because i okay, here's how I want to frame this because i I know you did sketch, um, mm-hmm. did you begin sketching college doing sketch
1: yeah, like a sketch improv troupe okay. at northwestern, yeah, um I
0: did sketch in college, mm-hmm. loved it, the most fun time I've ever had. I never thought that one could continue having that much fun past graduation. Right. I want to know, young, collegiate Seth Myers, was it just a high that you didn't want to leave, or did you see a path where potentially you could pursue it? Well,
1: that, it? I think, of all the benefits of my Northwestern education that my yeah. parents were kind enough to pay for, was it's... Proximity to Chicago. By the way, you've paid them back by introducing them
0: to Idris Elba. I heard yes, that interview, and absolutely, thank you. I, he, he, I thought he pushed it one line
1: too many about hitting on your mom. Well, I'm pretty <laughs> sure she still talks about it. So, yeah. I, you know, he could push it however far. Away. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It was the greatest gift anyone's ever given my mother. But, um, uh, we were so close to Chicago, so we right. were in a sketch troupe, and those of us who really liked it and I think enjoyed it, we started taking. Uh, going into Chicago during the week and taking improv classes at at, uh, this place, I.O., and then stuck around Chicago afterwards. So, like, because it was Chicago, you know, and we would all go see Second City on weekends, like, we saw the path. It was Mm -hmm. there for us, you know, and... uh, Who
0: was there there at that point?
1: Uh, So when I was first... I remember when I was at... When I first went, probably, like, my new student week, my parents came out mm -hmm. and took me out, and uh, I saw Colbert and Carell. Wow. Um, And then when my... You know, Dratch, uh, Stephanie Weir, Tina. Mm -hmm. I saw Horatio on stage there. Scott adds it. Um, But they were, I mean, it was fantastic. The people I saw on stage there blew my mind. What's amazing about that is, in in my memory, when I would see comedians when I was in college,
0: I thought they were the greatest people. I thought they were gods, like celebrities and worthy of, you know, global
1: domination. You saw people who would eventually reach that level. Yeah. And also, you know, polar... Not only that, but, like, we were seeing it pretty quickly. Yes. Like, they would... People would leave town for SNL. Right. So, you know, there was... I never thought I'd get to SNL, but I thought maybe, you know, my goal was get to Second City, and then hopefully Second City would maybe lead to SNL. Like, that was... um That was what I wanted to do after college more than anything else. What years were you a member of the Boom Chicago troupe in Amsterdam? All right, so I graduate... I'm pretty sure I saw you, but go on. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, April 97 to... Like February
0: 99 I saw you That's, That's fantastic I, uh, I actually went And I don't know if this has ever come up But with our uh, Your fellow NBC colleague uh, Alex Wagner Okay Who is my good friend From Sketch Comedy Group In college No way she and Her stepfather is uh, Dutch Okay and visited her With a f- another friend in the summer We went to see Boom Chicago And I thought that you guys... Again, I thought you guys were gods. Like, Um, like you got to live in this fun city. Yeah. Fun is an understatement. Yes. And you got to just do sketch comedy and, you know,
1: Stone College kids would come see you. This is the dream crowd. I think that might be the closest I ever felt to a god, (laughs) my years living in Amsterdam. Like, even when I was... You know living in New York as a young man yes. on s n l people would say you must this must be the best time of your yeah. life and i 'd have to say well i lived in i was twenty three <laughs> living in Amsterdam yeah, I had a full time job where I got to perform two hundred nights a year it's and uh, yeah, it was a great experience
0: living in amsterdam and again i 'm sorry to be like Idris Elba here. I am yeah. in so many ways,
1: but your parents were uh thrilled that you had a job they thrilled were thrilled. You were in Amsterdam. my parents um You know, my dad uh, is a businessman who I think, and this would be the case, had he chosen to be in comedy, I think my dad would be a very successful comedian. Interesting. My mother was a theater major at Northwestern, so I think she, like then, is very proud of her sons wanting to, like, follow the arts. Of course. And they just, like, kind of love adventure. And over the course of the... Because I was in Amsterdam for two years, and my brother was there for three years. Mm -hmm. He did it as well. And they you know, probably went over there like 15, 20 times. They loved it and they were so, I mean, I think they were just really proud of us for taking this pass. And that was also, uh, I was there during a golden age. The people that worked over in Amsterdam when I was there, Ike Barinholtz from the Mindy Project, uh, Jason Sudeikis, Kay Cannon, Jordan Peele. They were all there. They were all there. Uh, My brother and I wish I had a program, but, like, yeah. everything from that trip, I somehow lost it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I believe know. It. I believe I don't it. know why. Was but, uh, but
0: Alison Silverman there as well Allison Silverman was there.
1: Allison was... Silverman was my roommate. I oh, lived with Allison and Pete Gross, yeah. who's uh, uh, an actor and writer as well.
0: And Alison was the executive producer of Colbert Report for many years. He's yep. now a writer in L.A. Um, probably has terrific skin now, like Andy Samberg.
1: Fantastic. Allison and, yeah. and I – Allison was the person I went out to dinner with after I auditioned for SNL. That's what I remember.
0: So here's the thing, and, and again, you've, you've lived this, so tell me if I'm wrong in my characterization of it, but this sounds like the most fun thing ever. But it's interesting in the way it was not very gently professionalized. There was a circuit, right? And there were different rungs on that ladder that yeah. you wanted to reach, and you yes. were aware of them. Yes. Um, what was the balance, and I'm sure the balance was a little bit tipped being in Amsterdam, but what was the balance of just having pure
1: fun versus... I have some goals here. I would like to make it to the next level. Well, the interesting thing about Amsterdam was, if you got the job at Boom Chicago, it's because it's second city. There was a touring company, and there mm-hmm. was a second stage, and there was a main stage. There were all there were understudies at Boom Chicago. You were just on the main stage. Yeah. So the minute your first day there, you were at the highest level there was in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what people decided and mm-hmm. what everyone was always weighing against is this is the most fun in the world. But yeah, I'm pretty close to the ceiling. Of an American actor living in Amsterdam. Right. You know, where am I? What am I going to do? And so for me, it was two years. Uh, You know, my brother was three years. I think Ike was around, you know, uh, two and a half, three years. And so it was just people (laughs) saying, like, this is, I, like, live in Disneyland. Yeah. But at the same time... Are there lost souls? Like people who are just probably just riding a bike still to a... Well, they're not lost souls because you have not lost your soul if you marry a Dutch woman. But some of them sort of have That's become true. like, you know, like people went over there and just realized like, oh, this is a wonderful life just, and I'm perfectly satisfied Just super being. Dutch. Yeah, they just went full Dutch. Uh, <laughs> my brother, this, I don't know if you know this little oh. uh, tidbit about my brother. So my brother dated uh, for two years over there, Carice Van Houten. What? Melisandre on Game of Thrones. No. Yes. Your brother dated... Because she was living in Amsterdam. She was an, the a red priestess. Yeah. How crazy is that? He could have fathered a smoke baby. He could have fathered a smoke baby. This is my claim to fame. Yes. Because uh, you need one at this point in I need career. one. So, Carissa stayed very close to both of us. So yes. We're very uh, good friends with her. She texted me, you know, whatever this is now, six years ago and yeah. said, uh, Hey, I just got... I'm auditioning for game, this show called Game of Thrones. Yeah. I know you. it seems like a book you would have read, which I had. That is the best friendly burn. It's like, the best friend. Friendly as Slip the knife a little bit. But she did say, that, is this part of Melisandra, is it good? And I was like, oh, it'll, you would be so good at Melisandra. So. so how many texts have you
0: written to each other over the last few weeks and months being like, LOL, isn't it funny the way everyone
1: thinks Jon Snow is dead? <laughs> I know, right? Because she's kind of involved, right? She's kind of involved. I will, to her credit... Um, no one involved in that show has told me anything one way or the other. But you can tell they have all been so coached. Here, Here's the thing. I, I, I was saving the Game of Thrones talk, but uh, we can take a little
0: mm. <laughs> interregnum Great. here. Great, let's do it. To say um, no one has asked the right question. They are so lucky, these people at HBO and on the show, because they went in front of people at Comic-Con. They went in front of people at TCA. And these – I'll refrain – these yeah. uh, people in the audience said – is Jon Snow dead? No, no, no. That allows them to say, of course he's dead. Right. The question is, is he coming back to life? Yes. When is he coming back to
1: life? Obviously he's coming back to life, and they cannot keep the charade up much longer. Well, here was my because uh, I so I moderated the Game of Thrones panel at Comic Con. This year. This year. Okay. And So now I can go straight to the source. You can go straight to say and I will say, like again, no one gave me anything. Right. But I heard Panelists saying to one another, "I'm so nervous they're going to ask us about Kit." Yes. The only thing I'll say is, you'd only be nervous if there was something to give but up. You're hiding, of course. Yeah, because there is but, a there is an answer that no one's nervous about. Here, exactly. Here's yeah. the thing. Poor Kit. He, where is he right now?
0: First of all, there are websites that know he's in Belfast. Sure. But second. Is he under lock and key? Did he have to pretend he got his hair cut? Did he have to fake things on his IMDb page to suggest
1: that he is working on other projects now that he's done with the show? It's so... I mean, we have such unreasonable expectations as an audience. Yes, it's so unfair. It is now... It's beyond 20 Because we're the ones that pushed them to do this. Yes. You know, otherwise they would just say, oh, just, yeah, you'll find out next year. It's a story, whatever. Yeah, it's it's a story. It's a TV show. Relax. Well, we have to do more and then you'll find out. Um... But uh, I can't wait. I mean... Yeah, you are. You are. We. You are a very big fan. Of the I am show. a big fan of the show. Very big fan and of big the show. fan of the books. And I'm. I'm a little nervous. It is that interesting thing of us book readers. Yes. We've now reached a point where we don't have this thing we can lord over the non-book readers. It was fun for you guys, right? It was a fun ride. It was a fun ride to like watch
0: people suffer and be shocked. Yeah. And, and you could have the ultimate. I mean, I feel like it's a look that I carried on my face throughout all of middle school. Yes. Without reason, but like feeling. I. You know. I. Well, I look at the comic books I'm reading right
1: now. I feel like we were the ants. And the TV show where the grasshopper people uh, were starting it up. And now, like, our whole... The whole promise was yeah. that when winter came, we would have the food. And yeah. now it's like, no, there's food for everybody. It's That's like, oh, right. Come on. And we're all equally hungry. Yes. Um, okay, so back to the back to
0: the timeline here. Um, when you did get SNL, which was 2001, One. Um, you, of course, like many people, you joined the show as a performer. Yep. And your career there as you said was longer than many 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 people's have been but it was also a really fascinating career because you were primarily a performer you were always a writer i would imagine
1: yes and like, and many, uh,
0: like many like yes. many performers yeah and then some people like jason was hired as a writer and went in front of the camera right. and that's happened many times too um i've as a, as probably all fans of snl are i love watching the different kinds of careers the show allows you can make your own lane on that show very much when did that lane begin to open up to you? When did you begin to see that you could be just as effective and perhaps more effective performing, but also steering the ship from behind the scenes to the degree that you did?
1: Well, I always felt more comfortable to show writing mm-hmm. than performing. I think like a lot of people, you get hired at SNL and then you feel just naturally you have this ego boost of, oh my God, Lorne sure. Michaels saw something in me and I'm one of the great performers. But I, the reality was it made me forget to some degree, the limits. I always knew of myself as a performer. Yeah. We used to joke when I, I was doing this two-person improv show when I was 26 years old and I used to say to the audience beforehand, like, you just pay very close attention because I can play anyone from 25 to 27. Like, <laughs> I didn't, I'm not one of those people yeah. and, like, Fred Armisen, you put on a different wig on him, he becomes a different person. Yeah. I always look like me in a wig. Like, that was just, <laughs> I did whatever it was about my face. Yeah, John Kerry. You know. oh, yeah, that, could, that was a good one. <laughs> but, uh, So I, you know, for my first three years at SNL, like, I was – it was, like, the thing that I think a lot of people on that show have gone through, which is you just feel, like, lesser than. You know, I was constantly comparing and despairing myself to all the other people on that show and the things they could do.
0: And also, as every young performer comes in, there are are noisy personalities established when you get there. And you were there um, when when Will was still there.
1: Yeah, my first year with Will, that wasn't – it was – you know, that's fine because you assume the people that are senior to you that will be better. Like, the Um. more terrifying thing is my second year – Fred Armisen, Will Forte show up, right. who are just two of the most unique, distinct voices. And really, I think their first day on the show, they knew what they were better at. It took me a few years to figure it out. Interesting. And that's really terrifying, is when you feel like you're being lapped. How much, you know, obviously,
0: uh, it's well documented the way behind the scenes used to be at the show. Um, in terms of what you're describing, in terms of feeling a little competitive, a little nervous about your place and things... How much of that is the ingrained culture of a show that operates like that with the, you know, you need, there's only limited airtime, there's so many people mm-hmm. fighting for it, and how much of it is really just driven by young people wanting to succeed? I mean, is it a top-down institutional feeling of, is, is the show run like a high school basketball coach being like, you know, you better run faster, or are you sort of, that's who young performers are naturally?
1: Everybody, yeah. I mean, again, every, no one got there without feeling like they deserved screen time. Of course. So, it's, you know, for some, A Rude Awakening. For some, it goes exactly the way they think. But also, like, for for no one is it consistent. Because the one thing is the show is very much a meritocracy. You know, mm-hmm. there is that table read on Wednesday. Um, you know, every now and then, you know, something fantastic won't make it or something that is a bit of a dud will. But mm-hmm. more often than not, like, the, the show follows the quality of the work each yes. week. Um, you know, maybe when somebody gets fully, when you're Will Ferrell in your last year, you know, maybe that you know lauren will say well let's that wasn't great on wednesday but let's just put it out there it'll get better by saturday but more often than not it really is the best stuff getting there but you know it's just naturally i think more than anything what you said is there's just so little real estate
0: right when you sorry to interrupt but when you see you had pete davidson on the show this week for his first uh i think first talk show appearance it was fantastic he was great um I loved his story about when he got the call which you know is what a year ago now basically (laughs) Lauren said I I don't know what to do with you but you got the show I imagine that happens to a lot of people when you see that look in his eyes and he's very young but when you see the look in his eyes he's new to the show he's one year in he's gotten a little bit of traction do you recognize that look do you want to hug him do you want to be him do you want to give him some advice because this is a he's at the beginning of a journey that you navigated
1: yeah but again you know i'm so impressed with pete and i think to some degree why he has a leg up being a stand-up like his Mm -hmm. whole career has been going up to a mic alone against a room yes coming from sketch and improv where you come from a troupe you come from like you you always had people watching your back right it's, I think, a little more jarring, because then you show up, and, and so to some degree, like, again, i am just been so impressed with Pete's work on the show, and I think he had that leg up because he had done the scariest thing on earth, which is, you know, when he was whatever, 17, 16. I can't imagine when he first got behind a microphone, but yeah. it's show, like, he's, he's older than his years. What,
0: at what point did you begin to move into the role that I think you you still, exi- you still sort of have in the popular imagination, which is sort of... Lawrence Consiglieri I mean you were the head writer For a number of years (laughs) Yeah Um, You were working closely With him at that point When did that begin How did that relationship Evolve over time So that you were Comfortable enough To be the one In the room With the boss Right um, Pushing for things Pushing back against things
1: Well so I survived My first four years On the show I think I survived More as a writer Than a performer Mm -hmm. Like I would I even I found it hard To write for myself So it was obviously Going to be hard For other people To write for me Right Whereas, I could write a group scene, I could write a scene where, you know, I play Anderson Cooper and I interview other people. Like, I I sort of found... You're a facilitator. Yeah, and I found ways to, like, write myself into scenes as, like, a point guard, ultimately. And, but also, even when I was just a cast member, like, I started writing cold opens or monologues, things that I couldn't be in just by the design of what they were. Right. But by doing that, then you'd get in the room with Lauren, you know, you'd talk just to discuss your script, and that was probably where he sort of first I mean it's more to be honest like it's not really about you being comfortable with Lauren as much as Lauren being comfortable with you yes and when Tina when decided to leave that was when Lauren reached out to ask because I basically did a year sort of underneath Tina Mm -hmm. her last year there before I took over and uh it was great I mean again like Lauren teases me that I was the only performer who was dying to be a writer <laughs> like everybody else is like so wants to go the other yeah. direction I was like I would love to be on the writing staff you get to come in all day Thursday <laughs> so, <laughs> what a dream. Yeah. um but it was – that was the first time that I felt any sort of degree of comfort on the show was because, you know, you not only got to write – as a head writer, not only do you get to write your own thing, but you get to help other people with their things. And I was finally felt like a, not a pretender. Like, I felt like right. an imposter. And now it's like, oh, I could, at least I see how I'm adding value to the show. How would you characterize your relationship with Lauren during
0: those years? And obviously you're still close to them to this day. I mean, he is a enormous figure in yes. the cultural imagination. But you have been in rooms with him at 1 and 2 in the morning What don't we know?
1: Um, Or do we know it all at this point? I mean, you probably know it all at some point. I mean, Lauren has excellent taste. Um, He's not... He's far more passive-aggressive than aggressive. So, you... You know, you will think you nailed a sketch. And you sort of bring it in. And and sitting while Lauren silently reads through something you've written is a pretty (laughs) tight way to go through five or six minutes. And... You know, he has, a, he has a really nice way of sort of saying, like, if like he'll say, like, you know, if you look, if this is what you want to go out with on Saturday, <laughs> I trust you. But that is a very nice way of yes. uh, getting you and, and whoever you're writing with that day to go back in and, and take another pass or two.
0: You were in the room with him and, I imagine, other producers um, during some auditions, right? You would yes. every year. Um, thanks to Mark Maron, the audition story has become like a national folktale. Yeah. I mean... Uh, everyone now hears. Everyone has to go on his podcast and talk about their audition story. Mm-hmm. You're in the room on the other side of those. So what? What can you tell us about those auditions and your role in them?
1: Well, you know, I wouldn't. There's the two parts of it: is the audition story, and then the Lauren meeting. The oh, Lauren meeting true. is usually, and I think that's but, like but, Mark's. But Maron's thing is his own Lauren meeting, which you yes, will never course. get over. It. But,
0: right. You know, I was just listening. Like, like Michaela Watkins was on the podcast recently, and she's such a phenomenal talent. Yeah, and I think really proof that. SNL the best talent spotters in the world and yep. pro- often write about what people's lanes should be Yes, um, she's much better suited to what she's doing now it seems like she, she would agree um, you know, but she told this story and they all. And it's amazing to hear these people who are very famous, medium famous, successful all have their same version of the story of being in a dark room knowing that Lauren and you are in that, in that crowd with the power to change their life
1: I, so when I auditioned, I did not know Rachel Dratch. I knew of her. Mm-hmm. But I had a friend who knew her. And I she gave him my number so I could call her and okay. say, hey, I'm about to audition. And one of the things that Rachel told me that I've told everybody ever since was nobody laughs, which is not entirely true. Okay, But it's a great thing to tell somebody who auditions because then if you hear even one laugh, you're winning. You think you're killing it. Right. And that is all you really need is like a, a kick of confidence. And so... Having had auditioned and remembered it, I feel like I was a pretty good laugher when I went to. Uh, and I should say, because you mentioned her, um, Michaela had a like white hot great audition. Like I still remember. But she says Ellen's. she did Ariana Huffington after someone else did Ariana Huffington. Yeah, but her Ariana Huffington <laughs> was the one. I mean, again, sure. there was. I mean, there were years. Where you'd see seven Amy Winehouses. Okay. Like that was just, there were always like some, like you'd have 20 people come yeah. in and there'd be that cultural touchstone person that everybody would do. Right. Um, but at that point, you're not even necessarily looking for the, the specifics of the, the
0: of the impersonation. You're looking no. for the, the, the talent behind it. And- the
1: approach. I mean, I think what the unique, delightful thing about SNL auditions are is that there's not, they don't give you a script to learn. Mm-hmm. They don't. Give you, They give you very loose parameters, and ultimately they're sort of saying, like, we're going to give you five minutes, like, show us what you have. It's this fascinating—it'll never stop being fascinating to me and many other people.
0: It's this amorphous thing where the show will become anything you want it to be if you have the drive and the talent. But you also have to bend yourself to the show if you want to survive to a certain degree. I mean, you have to be— able to be the glue person not everyone can do this but you know you, you yes. can, to be a glue person the sketch to be the sixth talking head to be the waiter I mean there you
1: have to be a part of a troop still it, Yeah, it, and sometimes balance. you know like I think when you look at um, I think Hader now will leave it sort of like he'll be he'll be mentioned in the best of all time yeah, I think so but sure. his path like you I think people forget that he was like very much just like a utilitarian yeah but he was so good at it and he had this mix of being an impressionist, yeah, um, and then being able to learn impressions that he didn't come with, yeah, and then being a really good straight man in scenes, and then all of a sudden you just realized like there was that one year where you realized oh the audience loves Bill Hader,
0: well, and everything he does he makes better, yeah, it, it, but in a less overt way than Will Ferrell, for example, who right. who who owns the screen a different way, but everything Bill does is.
1: Well, there's not, and I really think this is the most impress. Like, he's the hardest to say, like, well, the classic hater sketch is yes. X because he has so many approaches to the way he does stuff. Yes. That, um, and that, you know, again, I would put that cast up against almost any cast. It's no question. And, um, I, uh, I think it was Bill Murray who said, which was not I mean he was pointed out that they were just great actors. Yes. And, which cat? Uh the sort of Bill was saying about this cast that like Wig you know, Sedecus, Forte, Samberg, yeah. like they were Myers. Uh yeah, well I, I've kind I, of said thank you. I'll I'll be a part of it, but mm-hmm. I kinda of feel like I was watching more than I You were I, in the room. I was in the room. But it was and I will say, like, I was a part of a great writing staff. Yeah. Like there was really great writers there and uh really great and so with great writing and great actors and also so you could have Yes, you'd have like a you know the show always needs like a, it was a great Kristen Wiig sketch. But then I feel like those years there were like three sketches where they were just cast. The cast was out, and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a, a cult of personality, one person driving the show. No, it was an incredible team.
0: Um, when I spoke to uh, your friend and former coworker John Mulaney, he talked about the the experience you remembers most was just being in a room with Mick Jagger ordering takeout. It's yeah. being like, okay, that is a moment where I am in Saturday Night Live. And <laughs> I, I was curious for you, having been there for so many years, if you could pinpoint the a moment early on when you were just, oh my God, I'm starstruck, look who I'm in the room with versus <clears throat> I'm in a room with Mick Jagger ordering takeout. What was the moment when you realized what you were doing and how normal it had become
1: the first time De Niro hosted after the table read I was running to catch an elevator and when I turned, the only person in the elevator was De Niro, and that was the last elevator I wanted to be in because I could already pre—I was pre-feeling awkward about uh-huh. it. But you can't then. We—he saw me. I can't, you can't run out. No, you can't like let say you'll get the next one. No. Uh, and so I always remember that. I thought so many thoughts in that 17 floor <laughs> elevator ride down. <laughs> like that's like, long, this is real. This is uh, this it, is a real. And 17 floors is not. These are old elevators. These are, are old nice. elevators. They don't race down. <laughs> Although I should also cause this is one of my favorite uh and I have many yes uh favorite moments with John Mulaney on that show him he was uh he was truly one of the greatest writers I worked with there and uh but we I remember had to go pitch monologue jokes to Mick Jagger oh yes and uh it was so we had there's that thing of like you you print out like you get like 20 jokes in the room and then we went in and John had the sheet and I can't remember the first joke but uh he, he read it to Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger just said, no. Yeah. And then John handed it to me. <laughs> to make you do the rest of it? To make the, me do the next one. So I read one and he was like, no. <laughs> and then you realize, because you put your best ones up top. Yeah. So you're like, if we are if we got straight no's on one and two the yeah. next 18. You're doomed. And I just <laughs> I just remember going back to hand it back to melanie realizing, oh, we're done. We're not. <laughs> melanie's not going to read another joke. And, uh, Was that longer or shorter than the 17 floors of the Denier? That actually felt maybe even longer because, yeah. you know, I've been on elevators before, but I've never been, you know, bombing and <laughs> pitching of. jokes to make Jagger, right?
0: Um, the the relationships that you built with people on the show is sort of staggering because you had so many people come in. And what I imagine to be the case, and please tell me if I'm wrong about this, but people who are very famous at other things come in at their most tender because they have yeah. to do something they've never done before. So you play a very vital role in their emotional survival for a few days, right? I mean, I think of like Peyton Manning was obviously very good on the show and maybe he was confident, but he can lead a team down the field, but to do a monologue, these are different things. So you develop a kind of a a surprisingly intimate relationship with people who are otherwise untouchable.
1: You really do. And it's lovely first of all it's lovely that somebody gives you six days yeah. of their life for this sort of thing um you know obviously they're very honored and flattered to be there but you take if you take care of them, and i think that's something that you know that the cast members and sketches with them do and the writing staff that they deal with the most does i will say though on the athlete level um they just don't get that spooked like i don't think peyton manning looks back and thinks um I'm always happy to see him, but yeah. I don't think he, he showed up and he's like, oh, these guys are going to have to show me what to do. I think he knew he could do it, yeah. and he was right.
0: What's the worst case versus being tackled That's the thing you, it, don't right?
1: lose, you don't lose work in the future because you bomb on SNL as an athlete. That's a
0: very good point. Yeah. Um, here's something I, I'm very eager to talk to you about, which is that you are low-key super famous. And here's what I want to read to you. I'm going to quote. I, I rarely do this, but this is why I have the notes. I want to quote from the New York Times. Okay. It's a newspaper of record. Yes, yes. This is from August. Okay. This is an article about Kanye West's fashion show. Uh-huh. But Mr. West was always going to draw a crowd, and he did. Kim Kardashian West was there with a the couple's daughter. Her sisters, Chloe and Kourtney Kardashian, her half-sister, Kendall Jenner. Kylie Jenner, Kendall's sister, appeared at the show. Nearby sat Lord, Ricardo Tishi, Michael Strahan... The rappers and musicians, common two chains, push a Miguel down a bit farther, Courtney Love, Michael Stipe, and Debbie Harry, and Seth Myers. <laughs> this is quite an August company. Yeah. How are you in that room? Why? Well, what are you
1: doing in that room? Um so You're a fashionable guy. I'm, I'm a be- fashionable enough guy. So I I I really the real answer is I don't quite know. Okay. But I will say this. I am a great lover of Kanye West's. You are work. in a safe space. And he was someone who came to SNL yes. and sort of changed the way people did music on the show. Like, he would, build, he would like, cover the set in white, and he would bring... Right. Ma- like, and it became a thing that people started doing more. Because when right. you think of, like, the classic SNL, like, nobody, like, redecorated the set. It was just always
0: them doing their thing in front of the train station.
1: Yes. And he uh, was a huge headache for the crew because, like, you know, the, every music act, they, like, slot 90 minutes to rehearse. Yep. Kanye would always go super long. It would push back the day. But... Also uh the SNL crew I can say always appreciates excellence. Mm-hmm. So Kanye was someone that drove everybody crazy and then always did this per- like excellent thing mm-hmm. and made the show special and that is what our crew respects more than anything else. And so over the years just like through SNL um I we did a sketch together once. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say, like, I felt like I knew him or anything. But every time I see him, you know, I, I say hello. And I, I like talking to Kanye a lot. And then he was, you know, our second show uh, of Late this, Night. This is what I'm getting to. Yeah. You... And it was um it was a huge favor. You know, we asked him to just talk. You know, he wasn't promoting any music then. And uh, it was really, for me, like, because I am fascinated about his process. I'm yeah. fascinated. Like, there are very few people. And, I, and this will sound like I'm commenting about... His ego, but really, he is very good at talking about Kanye West. Yes. Like some people you have on and you don't, you can't get them to talk about themselves. They almost don't know. But he is, I think he's thinking about Kanye West a lot too. Well, he makes very
0: conscious artistic choices. He knows what he is doing and what he's playing with when he plays with it. And it's all very intentional, which makes good art.
1: And it was, uh, and for me, it was a great conversation. And then he also, by the day of, agreed, like decided he was going to do music and did this fantastic medley. And so. It's just one of those things, like, I'm just a, a fan. And then, anyways, I got an invitation to go to his fashion show. Does it arrive by Dove? Like, how does this invitation show up to you? It just kind of, you just kind of hear you've been invited. Someone whispers to you on the platform at Grand Central, And then like you turn around and they're gone? Yes. And then you're like, is it a real invitation? But then I wasn't, and it was, it was a show day. And so right. I usually would never leave in the middle of the afternoon on a show day. And I sort of mentioned in passing to my wife that I had been invited, but wasn't going to go. And to my wife's credit, because yes. I'm very happy I went. Yes, she said, "Oh no, you have to. Go. You're an idiot if you don't go. You have to just yeah. go. Just go in early and do whatever two hours you're going to miss in the morning, and then go." She's a very wise woman. She's a very wise woman. I am so. I mean, of all the things we've talked about, Saturday Night Live, everything. I
0: think friendship, even casual friendship with Kanye West, yes. may be at the top of my list.
1: And it's it's very casual. Like I, this is not, but um it is uh, I'm very happy about it could you text him right now I'm not going to ask you to um, do you have that ability I think the last phone number I have of his <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine it's still his number
0: he, I, I just want to
1: imagine that he cycles through a new phone like he, he has burner phones yeah. like the why he just snaps we had because when I we wrote uh, this sketch for him I like 2007 I will say we wrote a sketch about how he interrupted award shows <laughs> before the Taylor Swift one <laughs> so he did he participated in a yes. sketch about that yes and then, like you know, year he was later. inspired. So
0: he's both self, like his. He's very, very smart, and I think yeah. so much of this is the other reason why. And I'm sorry to most of my podcasts I do are derailed by Kanye West talk. Yeah, but I don't buy the all of the performance. Everything he does is performance. And when you see yeah. him on your show, episode two, he's humble. He's a guy on your show being yeah. a guest. You know, being there to service your questions and. He's you know there wasn't anything extra about that. He was not performing the same guy that he is performing when he interrupts Taylor Swift.
1: Yeah, and, and you m- know, maybe you didn't serve as no- enough liquor, but you know I saw him uh, this Time 100 event that I've been to a few mm-hmm. years uh, or a few times I should say over the years, and you know it's a tough room for they always have a musical act and uh, they're fantastic and people do great. You know I think I've seen you know Prince there, R- Rihanna yeah. like they're great. Kanye just uh, he didn't. Like I guess he didn't lower ex- his expectations at all of like what he was going to expect from this uh-huh. crowd. He was like, "No, I'll, I'll I'm going to destroy here too." Yeah, and um, I'm going to get Henry Kissinger on his feet. And... Yeah, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to go till you get on your feet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> he's still there. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, but it was uh, no. What like everybody there just kind of and again, like I said, like it hadn't ever the show had never been a dud. Yeah, but it was the first time that I feel like everybody <laughs> really appreciated that. Like, oh, he gave this us is... a full. We got the full Kanye. God bless him. Yeah. Um,
0: we are, we are running low on time,
1: but I, since I have you here, I feel like we should talk about this as well, which is,
0: um, you know, I know from our, our, our limited email exchanges that you are a big fan of, of television. Yeah. I still think back from your fantastic Emmy joke about TV being the booty call of entertainment. Yes. I call back to that often. Um, what I especially appreciate is that I think we share a passion for very, very slow narrative TV. Yes.
1: I, well, I should say my favorite television show of all time. Yes. Um, it's a miniseries of all time yes. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy oh amazing slowest so slow slowest spy movie of all time yes anytime like my brother will laugh because I when when I'm like in a funk or I'm depressed I yeah. just watch it from start to finish because I and I've explained it to him that I just like I I like knowing how it ends yes I just want to spend like sort of just want to live slower. in that world yeah so I like I I can be really patient
0: yeah but you we've talked about um, Rectify Rectify which is a wonderfully, wonderfully slow and, and Show Me a Hero yep These are things that are hard to convince people to commit to. Yeah. And I would imagine they're also hard to promote because, you know, um, like I had people from Rectify on here, I Abigail and Aiden on the show. The the viewership is passionate for Rectify, but it's kind of probably hard to say, okay, well, I want, you know, I want Ray, the guy that created the show that gets 800,000 viewers on
1: Late Night with Seth Meyers. Right. Yeah, but you can. You could do it. You could do it if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, we could do it if we wanted to. It is... But it's hard. The other thing about those shows is you don't, it's not, it's a hard show to recommend. Yes. Because you don't, like, there's that thing of, I've never thought everybody should like what I like. I think yes. that's a very important part of, like, saying about shows. I mean, so there's something I adore and I can't, you know, I'll say to my friends, oh, I, I'm watching Rectify, and i will say, should I watch it? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, watch, like, the I first that's 10 minutes. I a valid answer. Yeah. I, I, I put the Sundance miniseries Top of the Lake at the top of my
0: mm-hmm. year-end list in 2013, and people will say, well, should I watch it? And I I honestly cannot tell you to do You have to make that decision for yourself. Yeah. Because it depends your feelings on, you know, nine hours spent by a lake in New Zealand. Like, yeah. I like going there, but you might
1: and not. I, you know, I certainly, I'm a, a great lover of the closed uh, parentheses show. Yes. Like, Top of the Lake was which i liked as well i had a real comfort sitting down knowing like this is not going to go on right forever oh, they're making a second one are they really they are I had uh, a, with elizabeth yes yeah, she oh, was wonderful. here talking about Great. it she, she confirmed but um, that, i should the clo- that case is closed yes that case is closed yeah that's because that Although was the ghosts linger. oh really <laughs> that i'm sure that, is, that
0: was that was the uh, tagline ghosts always linger yeah they do linger um well, the, the, this idea that people have been talking about and I've been talking about, about there being so much TV, um, you've been playing with it really well on the show with Fred. Yeah. With, uh, his Fred Armisen's super accurate yeah. TV recaps, which are wonderful, and they must be so much fun to do because— The best. You have no idea. No idea. I think the key to those bits—and I recommend people please track these down. You've been doing them. Yeah. Did you just start? Just this week. Yeah, yeah. they've been great. Um, is that the first thing Fred says to you is, did you see the pilot? Which is exactly what everyone who is a TV snob
1: says first. Yeah. Oh, well, did you see the pilot? <laughs> it's also what I love about Fred is he will find, like, I because I, ver- I make it so clear before yes. I bring up the title that I have not seen the show. Right. And then you tell Fred and he says, have you seen it? It's like, yes, Have you it's seen the like, pilot? Oh, my God. Yeah. He's, he's, so, <laughs> he's so appalled by
0: you. Um, but the benefit of this glut of television is that it's allowed very talented people like yourself to just, just have fun. Yeah, And uh, I, you know, I didn't want to let you go without talking about The Awesomes, the cartoon show you do on Hulu, yep. and specifically Documentary Now, which you guys did, with, which you, Hader, and Armisen did yep. um, with a, num- a number of other people, talented people involved uh, on IFC. And particularly Documentary Now, I don't know of a world prior to 2015 where a yep. new television network would say, obviously, people want to be in business with you guys. You're yep. well-known. You, you We're are, very lucky that way. But what you wanted to do was so deeply specific and it went beyond it's not a parody of documentaries no it's sort of lived in
1: celebration of their darkest quirks I, I don't know how you would even describe it there were times with sketches I remember and this is kind of how I feel about a uh, documentary now which will seem I I, I don't want to like oversell it but I there were sketches where I'd say to Lauren like I'm not sure if it's good but I think it's great yeah which is like it's not like you will either you either think it's great yeah. or it's not is that, is that the 1250 AM sketch? Is that like to a, some degree. Like a potato yeah, sketch. Yeah, exactly. A... It's not like, I mean, if you're saying like, well, what's good? Good is a sketch that gets a lot of laughs. And yeah. But like great, it's either like if it worked, it would be great. Yes. And if it didn't work, it wasn't going to be like, well, it's funny enough to like tune into. You're right. So, um, and again, I should mention both Reese Thomas and Alex Buono who directed yes. and they directed the shorts on SNL for many years and, and almost all the sort of style um, specific stuff. But, yeah, you know, we were, and also, we were just, you're we just really lucky that there's a network like IFC that was, it wasn't even a hard sell, like when we pitched this idea. They were in from Jump. Yeah. And, you know, we're very lucky. I think we, a credit to Fred and Carrie, because thanks to Portlandia, right. I think IFC saw this as, oh, this is sort of this kind of uh, unique comedy brand we're trying to develop. But it's also, and and we can wrap up
0: with this, but, you know, one of the things that has always made SNL and, NBC's comedy brand and that wonderful building So appealing I think for so many generations Is that it feels like home for a lot of people And it feels like fun And we get to have a window into the fun you guys are having And the sort of post-SNL stardom That you and and Fred and Bill Specifically are celebrating Is one in which there are no There are no barriers but there are no barriers Below you either like you will go back to TV And take a character part You 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 are still going to continue to have fun You don't need to move to LA And try to be in action movies um, although that works out for some people. Yeah. They, they end up with 11.30 talk shows. But um, I, I find that really compelling.
1: Well, you know, for us, that is what drew us to us. We knew... I mean, look, we were all lucky um, to have other things that we could sort of have be our main sort of job. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, if I had free time... Like, people say, what do you, how do you have time for Dr. Mariner now?" And I sort of want to say, like, well, if I had free time and I, if I wanted to have a hobby... Like I wouldn't want to go fishing on a fishing vacation with Bill and Fred. Right. I'd want to go on a vacation where we made little doc fake documentaries. Where you played. Yeah. And so it is like, uh, you know, and I, I should stress that like the people who work on the shows like work very hard and it's not like so fun. No. But for me, it is like the greatest gift as a writer I ever had was being able to write something and to turn it over to people like Fred, to people like Bill who have never once uh, not elevated the work you do right and so that and you know again like that's probably uh i have no i'm so happy doing my show and i hope i do it for a really long time but yes i the one thing i miss probably the most is just hey like here Kristen, andy will and then you then get to watch them first yeah. you get to see it live uh last thing you're doing a
0: show you're making more things for ifc five years from now after uh, snl 45 Lauren says, "You know, I think I'm going to retire. Seth, do you want to do it? What do you say?"
1: I don't think. I think it'd be a crazy job to follow Lauren. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know uh, you know, even if like there wasn't late night because I don't want to do it more than I want to host late. Night. Right. Um even if there wasn't late night. What I if don't they were know. like what if you were like Paul Ryan
0: and everyone in the at 30 rock is like we need you. Right. We need you. I know you don't want to do it. I it's guess a suicide if I run, but,
1: if I got drafted, yeah. I would to serve my country. But um I do believe that I think – look, don't, I don't, don't get me wrong. I think Lauren is, is – is people appreciate Lauren. Yes, It's not like he's underappreciated. But they might to some degree slightly undervalue exactly how much he means to each week on that show. That's right. Because like, I do think – Obviously, everyone's like, he's got incredible taste, and he's this uh, puppet master, and he's set people off and set them up to succeed. But he really is still so important to the daily DNA of that yeah. show. It's
0: not like he's been slowly handing off responsibilities. He's there every right. day, yeah. every night, every show night,
1: certainly. Yeah. I mean, he comes in late. He's the last person to come in. Wow. Yeah. He's, he comes in late. Oh, he he's,
0: comes in. He doesn't leave. Er, you're saying he doesn't leave late. He comes in late.
1: He comes in late. Yeah. Well, you're always like, where's Lauren? Well, mean, he, he, he's probably the Yankee. I mean, he's he's a busy guy. Yeah, he's, he's like strolling in. He's like a very healthy Canadian who like takes a, like an hour constitutional every day. That's key to it, right? Like that's under that's underreported that, that he's a hail and hearty Canadian. That's the part, the <laughs> part that I well, like he's the one thing he figured out is like, oh, I'm not staying up all night writing. Yeah. You're staying up. That's all why night I writing. hired you. Yeah, delegation is key. Yeah, and so he sort of has the uh, yeah. He always comes in. Like, he looks like he should have, like, a knotty walking stick (laughs) and, like, a a pack with his lunch. So, uh, more Gandalf, more Tom Bombadil. Like, what? Second, Bombadil. Pure Bombadil? Yeah, yeah. No Gandalf. There's no Gandalf to Lorne, uh, (laughs) because Lorne would never, like, sort of make any sort of declarations in that Gandalfian way. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad that I could bring it back to SNL. Try and get you with a
0: gotcha question and make you nerd out all in the last 30 seconds of this podcast. Very well done. Mitch
1: called putting a bow on it. Mission
0: accomplished. Yeah. Seth Myers, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes or go to Grantland.com and click on podcasts.